This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the ninth episode of season 10. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know Scotland's national animal is a unicorn? In Celtic mythology, the unicorn was a symbol of purity and innocence, as well as masculinity and power. It was first used on the Scottish royal coat of arms by William I in the 12th century. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. Take criticism, smash it into dust, add colour and use it to paint breathtaking images of unicorns frolicking through endless fields of greatness. That was said by actor Matthew Gray Goobler. Hopefully I'm saying his surname right. Apparently I said Schultz instead of Scholes last week. My bad. This case was suggested by listener Alex Tasker via the contact page at britishmurders.com. We're in Horsforth this week, a suburb of northwest Leeds. Here are five quickfire facts about Horsforth. Number one, Horsforth was named as one of the UK's most desirable places to live in 2017. LS18, the area's postcode, was the eighth most desirable postcode district in England, according to a study conducted by the Centre for Economic and Business Research, as well as the Royal Mail. Number two, Horsforth Village Museum is housed in the former council chambers and aims to reflect the heritage of Horsforth through exhibitions portraying all aspects of life in and around the area. Number three, triathlon athletes, the Brownlee brothers, Alistair and Jonathan, grew up in Horsforth. Jonathan won bronze at the 2012 London Olympics and silver at the 2016 Rio Olympics, while Alistair won gold at both. They even had a pub named after them in the town, the Brownlee Arms. Speaking of famous people from Horsforth, how about legendary actor Malcolm McDowell? You may remember him from such films as A Clockwork Orange, Time After Time and Blue Thunder. And finally, number five, and sticking with the actor theme, does the name Matthew Lewis ring a bell? He's a Horsforth native best known for his role as Neville Longbottom in the Harry Potter film series. The approximate population of Horsforth, according to the 2011 census, is 18,895. Let me transport you back over a century now to the year 1891. It was a time I'm sure none of us can comprehend living in now, but humour me as I set the scene for this week's late 19th century story. Picture yourself walking down the cobblestone streets of Victorian England as you take a deep breath. You're greeted with a whiff of thick smoke and horse shit. It must have been a quite unique and unusual combination. It was the era of unironically worn top hats and corsets, symbolising both elegance and restraint. Given the era's name, you won't be surprised to hear that Queen Victoria sat on the throne during the events of this story, but she would only be alive for another decade. 
The billowing smoke filling the skyline was evidence of numerous factories dotting the landscape, pivotal elements driving forward the Industrial Revolution. We're just three years removed from the infamous Whitechapel murders of 1888. I will touch upon those briefly later in the episode, but it's important to note their proximity in history. 1891 was a pretty good time to be alive if you're a fan of literature. Arthur Conan Doyle released his first two Sherlock Holmes books, A Study in Scarlet and The Sign of Four, in 1887 and 1890, respectively. Meanwhile, Oscar Wilde gifted readers with The Picture of Dorian Gray, which hit bookshelves in April 1891, just two months before our main timeline begins. In 1891, England and Wales boasted a combined population of 29 million, as recorded in that year's census. This figure highlighted the remarkable growth and diversity of the two nations, whilst notably the bustling city of London stood out as a hub of activity, where trains were the dominant mode of transportation. Despite its relatively small size and population, Britain was the most powerful trading nation in the world. As we move into our story, the first thing I want to say is that this case involves the murder of a child. These episodes are always hard to research, but this one was especially difficult given the victim was a five-year-old girl, just like my daughter. Consider this an extra content warning, as I know some people understandably prefer to skip episodes involving children being killed. Barbara Waterhouse, the central figure in this heartbreaking story, was a young girl raised in the quaint surroundings of Horsforth, born in 1886. Her parents, David and Elizabeth Waterhouse, led a modest and working-class life, with the former employed as a quarry worker. There is a former quarry just east of Horsforth Town Centre called Woodside Quarry, so that's likely where David worked. While Barbara's father's occupation is clear-cut, information regarding her mother's profession remains unknown. Considering the era and their family size, comprising five children, it can be reasonably assumed that Elizabeth was a devoted stay-at-home mum. Amongst her siblings, Barbara held the position of middle child. Remarkably intelligent for her young age, she exhibited an advanced level of maturity beyond her years. However, uncovering comprehensive details about Barbara's personality traits and hobbies proved challenging during my research. I always like to include as much information as possible about the innocent people whose lives were tragically taken away from them in my stories, but with this one, I really struggled. The primary reason for that is the fact that nearly 95% of my sources are old newspapers from over a century ago. Due to their limited coverage on such matters concerning young children like Barbara, or perhaps due to societal norms at the time which focused less on individual characteristics and more on timelines, information about Barbara is practically non-existent. Barbara was the sister of case suggester Alex's great-grandma. I deeply regret that there's not much more information available to tell you about her short life. I'm sorry that I couldn't offer you anything more. Regarding her murder, there were striking similarities between hers and the infamous Jack the Ripper cases. Having said that, the choice of victim doesn't quite add up given Barbara's young age and the Ripper victims typically being sex workers, but I'll come on to the links between them a bit more later. An even deeper dig into this bizarre case reveals why there are suspicions regarding Barbara's killer potentially being involved in seven-year-old John Gill's murder. 
Like the Whitechapel murders, John was also killed in 1888, with his body being discovered wrapped in a bundle on December 29th. He had been badly mutilated to the point where many of his limbs had almost been severed and his insides were protruding. Before I reveal the links to Barbara's case, let's first get into this week's main timeline. Saturday, June 6, 1891 began like any other weekend in the Waterhouse's family home. By mid-morning, the kids were well underway with their typical hijinks, such as running around all over the house, playing games with each other or their friends who'd popped over for the day. Barbara was in the company of some friends when she left the house at around 11am that morning and was seen playing out and just living the joyful, innocent life that kids do. As the morning turned into the afternoon, Barbara had made her way with one of her friends to the shop-filled streets of Horsforth to have a good old browse of the advertisements on display. Double-taking at one particular advert, the inquisitive five-year-old turned to a friend and said, Look, isn't that like my dadda? The man in the advert was a dead ringer for David. Barbara couldn't wait to get home and tell him as soon as she'd finished playing. Timestamp-wise, we're talking around 1pm when she spotted that advert with her dad's doppelganger in it. Mere moments later, Barbara Waterhouse disappeared. She would not be seen alive again. It's unclear as to how exactly David and Elizabeth were made aware that Barbara was missing, but we can piece together a logical chain of events that led them to realise. Firstly, we know that Barbara was with a playmate whilst looking at the adverts. It's who she said her final words to, so perhaps they were the ones that informed her parents. Secondly, Barbara likely had a time she had to be home by, so once that came and went, David and Elizabeth would have known something wasn't right given how responsible their daughter was. It would have been so out of character for her to stay out late without permission. Barbara didn't simply disappear into thin air though, that much is obvious. The precise chain of events was known only by the person who harmed her and it was scarcely reported in the papers, but it's assumed her killer somehow lured her away from her friend and murdered her in a quiet part of Horsforth. One source indicated that Barbara was supposedly killed in a pub called the Old Boat and Shoe, but that appears to be an unsubstantiated claim. Once the penny dropped that Barbara was missing, David and Elizabeth, along with several of their friends and neighbours, commenced a frantic search in the hopes of finding their daughter safe and sound. Their efforts proved fruitless. Not a single trace of Barbara could be found, leaving her parents overcome with worry and the police beyond baffled. The limitations of the police at that time were evident. Their methods were primitive at best compared with modern times. If you want to learn more about the comparisons between late 19th and 21st century murder investigations, I highly recommend you go and read my former guest Stephen Keogh's book on Jack the Ripper. He'll be back on the show discussing that book in an upcoming interview episode, FYI. Four long days would pass before the Waterhouse family heard an update regarding their missing daughter, and it wasn't good news. The badly mutilated body of five-year-old Barbara was discovered shortly before midnight on Wednesday, June 10th, by Police Constable William Moss. Whilst making his rounds that evening, PC Moss recalled passing by the corner of Alexander Street in Leeds City Centre, a stone's throw away from the town hall, and spotted nothing unusual. That was at about quarter past ten at night. Just an hour and a half later, whilst walking past the same spot, his torch spotted something that wasn't there before. 
some kind of bundle that had evidently been dumped by someone not wanting to be seen. That area of the city was notoriously quiet during the late hours, so it was the perfect place for someone to get rid of something discreetly. At first, PC Moss wore nothing more than a confused look on his face upon first seeing the bundle up close. It wasn't until he rolled it over that his face suddenly dropped when he realised what he'd found. Inside the rags was the body of a young girl. On closer inspection, the constable realised she was dead, and given the extent of her injuries, her death had been at the hands of someone else. The only clue police had to go on was the old-looking shawl the child's body had been wrapped in, which was described as being grey plaid in one source, whilst another called it brown and white plaid. The body was quickly taken via an ambulance to the nearest police station where Dr Ward, a police surgeon, was summoned to take a closer look. His preliminary examination of Barbara's body led to him concluding that she had been dead for no more than 24 hours but it was pretty clear that the deposition site wasn't where she was killed. Given PC Moss's testimony, Barbara's body had only been left there for around an hour, an hour and a half max. There were also reports indicating there was no blood at the scene where her body was found, which further confirmed that she must have been killed somewhere else. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Her injuries were extreme, to say the least. I don't see the benefit of going through them here other than to provide shock value, which isn't what we do on British Murders. All I'll say is that Barbara was subjected to severe body mutilation, similar to that of John Gill, whom I mentioned earlier. Her official cause of death was exsanguination caused by a cut from her stomach to her chest. She also displayed defensive wounds on her hands, so she put up the best fight she could, but I was sickened to read that she had been subjected to what the papers at the time referred to as ill usage. It doesn't take a genius to infer what they meant by that. The stomach injury, according to Dr. Ward, was the only wound that bled, and considering there were 50 knife wounds in total, it can be assumed that most, if not all, bar the stomach one, were inflicted post-mortem. Another potential clue that didn't end up going anywhere was that Barbara had a white powder sprinkled on her chest, which detectives initially believed to be flour. The substance was, in fact, something referred to at the time as chloride of lime. In modern times, we know this as calcium hypochlorite or bleaching powder. You've likely heard of people covering dead bodies in lime. The chemical compound was used heavily throughout World War I in an attempt to disinfect the trenches and soldiers' wounds. With David and Elizabeth informed of the discovery, they were tasked with formally identifying Barbara's body, which they did on June 11th. Elizabeth reportedly fainted at the sight of her daughter's remains. One red herring in this case is that several articles make reference to two men, described as scavengers, who just so happened to be working close to where Barbara's body was dumped on the corner of Alexander Street. Both men were said to have made important statements to the police, but the media were not informed of their details. No further mention of those statements is evident, so they can't have been as important as the police first thought. Another murder linked to this case based on its similarities was that of 10-year-old Nicholas Martin in Liverpool. His mutilated body was found in Sandon Dock, a part of the port of Liverpool on the River Mersey, in May 1891. 
Barbara's killer was eventually ruled out, though, as 60-year-old John Conway saw himself hanged at Kirkdale Jail in Liverpool for that crime on August 20th. Given Barbara's body was wrapped in a shawl, detectives working the case believed her killer to be a transient who may have been living in one of the lodging houses in the city centre. That was mere speculation. In reality, they had no leads, no ideas regarding a motive, and zero suspects. One arrest was made when Leeds resident Mark Ibbotson was spotted by police walking towards the Greater Manchester town of Stockport. He had a noticeable wound on his neck, which led to him being taken in for questioning. Mark would go on to admit having killed Barbara, but the reliability of his confession was soon brought into question. He was well known to the police and was shortly after declared insane by a doctor. Mark ended up being sent to Parkside Asylum in Macclesfield. It wasn't until officers at Horsforth Police Station were visited by a woman called Ann Turner on June 13th that the murder investigation team was able to focus on a key suspect. Ann's signed statement read as follows. I have a son named Walter Turner, 32 years of age, a weaver by trade, who works at Messrs Lonsdale's Mill, Horsforth. On Monday last, I noticed a bundle in the coal house under the stairs in my house. It was wrapped in the shawl shown to me now, which is my property. I was from home on Saturday last. On Monday, I asked my son what was in the bundle. He replied, I'll tell you sometime. It's nothing I have done. I did not look inside the bundle, though I touched it. I thought something was wrong. I had used the shawl on my son's bed. My son Walter was in Leeds sometimes on Wednesday evenings. On Wednesday night, I was with him. We brought the bundle with us and left it in the street in the rear of the town hall. We then walked home and arrived about 1am. We brought the bundle in a tin box to Leeds and left the box at the railway station. I have not seen it since. Walter Lewis Turner was born in 1859 in Nottingham to his mum Anne and his dad George. George passed away a few years before this story's events, leaving Anne a widow, and as for their family history, information is lacking. Turner did have a sister, although her name escapes me. In 1882, Turner married a woman called Ellen Hainsworth, but they had no children. To give you a little insight into Turner's character, he was once imprisoned for nine months in 1889 after attempting to kill Ellen with a knife. The couple's strained marriage was at breaking point that August, but even so, they'd been living together in the Bradford town of Shipley. Turner was a violent drunk, but had promised to lay off the booze when he moved back in with his wife. He didn't keep his promise. One evening, after a particularly heavy drinking sesh, Turner tried it on with Ellen and was rejected. The next thing Ellen knew was that she woke up to the sensation of her neck being cut as her husband lay over her with a knife in his hand. Thankfully, the knife was blunt, so the neck wound was barely a quarter of an inch thick. But if you think about it from another angle, how much force must Turner have used to inflict such a wound with a blunt knife? The reason Turner has been considered a suspect in the John Gill case from December 1888 is because that murder occurred in Manningham, Bradford. At the time, Turner lived in Shipley, two and a half miles away, so he could easily have been the person responsible, although he claimed to have spent that Christmas period with some of his friends in Leeds. Despite that supposed alibi, there are many who still believe he was the one who murdered John Gill, as the youngster's killer was never brought to justice and is not known to this day. 
At the time, a man called William Barrett was charged, but then subsequently released without charge due to a lack of evidence. Ellen did the wise thing and moved far away from Turner, settling in the United States. Turner then moved into his mum's house in Horsforth. Here's the chain of events according to Anne Turner. On the day of the murder, June 6, she saw Turner leave for work that morning and wasn't far behind him as she headed out herself. She was most surprised to see Turner at home an hour or so later when she returned at half nine. He'd clearly been drinking and excused himself before heading for his room. He said he needed to sleep off the effects of the drink. Shortly after that, Anne left the house once more and headed for Leeds with her son-in-law Thomas Joy, the husband of her daughter, Turner's sister. Mr and Mrs Joy were both deaf and could easily be taken advantage of. It'll become clear as to why I'm telling you that in just a moment. With Anne out of the house, it's presumed that Turner headed to the centre of Horsforth, spotted Barbara Waterhouse, lured her away from her friend and killed her. When Anne returned home later that day with her 12-year-old grandson in tow, she noticed a dark red stain on the floor which had been smeared by what appeared to be a footprint. It looked curiously like blood, but for whatever reason she thought nothing more of it and likely just cleaned it up. The following morning, Anne was about to head to the coal house located under the stairs. Back in the days of no central heating, families had cupboard-type spaces dedicated to storing coal for the fireplace. Before she got to the coal house, Turner had made his way inside and retrieved some coal, which was most peculiar. Turner never helped around the house or fetched coal. After handing the coal to his mum, Turner moved the sofa to block the entrance to the coal house door and plonked himself on it. He remained on the sofa for most of the day, refusing to budge either he or it. Fast forward to the following morning, June 8th, and Anne had gotten up before Turner. So she moved the sofa and headed inside the coal house where she stumbled across a strange bundle. Inside was the body of Barbara Waterhouse. Confronting her son and insisting that she must call the police, she was talked out of it. Turner protested his innocence and explained to Anne that he had been drinking with a man called Jack before passing out and waking up with Jack nowhere to be seen and Barbara's body in the bundle. Opting to help her son instead of dobbing him in, at that point at least, Anne agreed to help him dispose of the bundle whilst also ridding the house of all its furniture. I read that they were moving their belongings to a new house anyway, but I'm not 100% sure what the logistics were regarding the furniture. Unable to keep what she knew to herself, Anne told her neighbour Mary Cottrell, there's been nothing less than a murder in our house. Mary urged Anne to inform the police, and although hesitant at first, she eventually did and made the statement I read out earlier. After she was arrested, Anne took the police officers to the train station, where they recovered the tin box from precisely where she said it would be. It seems as though Turner and Anne headed to Mr and Mrs Joy's house with the bundle inside the tin box, left the box there whilst they dumped the bundle in the centre of Leeds and then returned to collect the box and then dumped it at Newley Station. Because her daughter and son-in-law were so easily taken advantage of, it makes sense as to why they made that extra stop on the way to Leeds and back. Barbara's funeral took place at Horsforth Cemetery on the same day Anne handed over the signed statement, with thousands of mourners turning up to watch the funeral procession. With Anne and her son in custody, the police did their best to gather evidence. 
They managed to find some of Barbara's blood in a wood two miles away from their home and recovered some of Barbara's clothes from inside the home's chimney. The mother and son duo, who both pleaded not guilty to all charges faced, would initially be tried together, but the decision was quickly made to try them separately. On July 31st at Leeds Assizes, Ann Turner was found guilty of feloniously harbouring and concealing a body. Her initial sentence was penal servitude for life, however it was later downgraded to 12 months imprisonment after she agreed to testify against her son. A day later, Turner was found guilty of murder after just 15 minutes of deliberation by the jury. Not only had his mum testified against him, but so had his sister, brother-in-law, Mary Cotterill and her husband. Mr Justice Grantham sentenced Turner to death by way of hanging. They really didn't mess around back then either, because 17 days after receiving his sentence, Turner was hanged at Armley Jail by executioner James Billington. His death, ironically, occurred just two days before John Conway's, the man who murdered 10-year-old Nicholas Martin in Liverpool a month before Turner killed Barbara. Different jails, though. Turner's last words were, I don't want that on, in reference to the customary white cap placed over the head of those sent to the hangman's noose. His request was ignored, and the bolt was quickly drawn. Weighing just seven stone at the time of his death, Turner was given a drop of eight feet, and reportedly died instantaneously. And that was the story of the murder of Barbara Waterhouse. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. If you're listening on Spotify, there's a section at the bottom of the episode. You can let me know your thoughts there. I've just got two new reviews to read out this week. Jordan Chilton left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It reads, Binge this podcast within a week. It makes my day at work so much better. Is there any chance you could do the case of Ral Moat? I know it's quite a big-named case, but I'd love to hear your take on it. I will cover that at some point, Jordan. I've added your name to my spreadsheet, as it has been suggested previously. And Amina P left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, which reads... I've got through all seasons in about two weeks. I'm really enjoying the ease and information in your podcast. I've always been interested in true crime and I'm so pleased that other people are fascinated by it too. Respect for the victim and their families really comes across in every episode and I'm a little sad that I'm up to date. I listen while I'm cooking, driving and I've even been bypassing Netflix for British murders. Keep up the excellent work, Stu Blue. Always reminds me of my old German teacher, Miss Masha, hearing someone call me that. She was also randomly my landlord at one point many years ago. Anyway, thank you, Jordan and Amina, for leaving those lovely reviews. If you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, or at BritishMurders.com. Please continue leaving star ratings for me on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, the links for each are at BritishMurders.com. Please continue emailing case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll get a cheeky shout-out too. And that does it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.